Hey, everybody. It's Chapo. I'm back. Back from sabbatical. Back from teacher strike. Party's over, gang. <laughs> Let's get serious. Uh, on that topic, in just a little bit, we'll be uh, talking to Barbara Ehrenreich about her new book, which is all about how the grim hand of death is upon us all, stalking us every moment of our lives inescapably, and that even our own minds and bodies conspire against us. It's called to- Nickel and Dime 2, drawn and quartered. <laughs> <laughs> Everything is conspiring against us to send us to the one place we're all going. It's a lot of laughs. <laughs> no, it's a very interesting book uh, that uh, dismantles some of the canards about health, well- wellness, and mindfulness that permeate our society. I uh, just want to say that I... I re- renounce everything in this interview. Uh, I'm going to live forever. I don't know how, but it's going to happen. Fame. Something. That's not good enough. We're no. going to transfer your brain into that uh, hedonism bot from Futurama. <laughs> or or Virgil's Porg. That'll work, too. Like in that <laughs> Black way. Mirror episode. No, Whatever buddy, it has you're to gonna be. be with Either me way, in... you're going to be carried around on a, on a palanquin. That sounds good to me. You're going to be with me in the VR chat world. <laughs> oh, God. No, never mind. I'll you're die. You're both going to be You're going to be with me, Goku. <laughs> Other Goku. Other Goku. <laughs> racist versions of all the characters. Uh, you're racist Vegeta. Oh, uh, uh, you know what? Racist I would... Piccolo. Never mind. The sweet embrace of death sounds pretty cool right about now. Uh... I believe that death is nothingness. Uh, before we get to there, let's uh, do a little. Uh, there's some. There were some special elections last. There were some primaries. Oh, last they were night. very special. I just want to say, first and foremost, the only thing I'll say on this, and then I'll turn it over to our elections correspondent, Virgil. So disappointed in the voters of West Virginia. Yeah, what the hell, people? For not electing Don Blankenship, or not at the Republican nominee. Although I'll take it. He didn't win, but we did get an amazing interview, I think ABC News did, with a man who is related to three of the miners that Blankenship's ignorant, uh, willful ignorance of, of safety standards led to their death in, in, the, in the coal mining disaster that he ended up going to jail for a year uh, for his involvement in. And he said, yes, they killed, they killed my relatives, but uh, I want an honest crook. And Blankenship is one of them. You had cousins who died in that mine disaster. Three of them. Three of them. Three of your cousins died in that mine disaster, and you're going to vote for Blankenship. Exactly. I want an honest crook, and that's Blankenship. So I'll just be carrying that around in my head for the rest of time, wondering how the hell you can even have a country yeah. at this point. Uh, Indiana, Ohio, North Carolina, and West Virginia had their primaries. Dennis Kucinich got flattened against Richard Cordray for governor of Ohio. Dan Cannon lost to Liz Watson. And, of course, the chapel endorsed Don Blankenship, a heroic coal miner, <laughs> just a, a regular good old man. A villain from Justified is... Uh, Literally yeah. Paul Bearer from the WWF. He lost, but he did get 20% of the Republican primary vote. That's pretty tasty. I think you should try again. And didn't you say that he won all of the counties that were, like, the most coal counties? He, yeah, he in, won in... some of the biggest coal counties in the state. Ooh. Man. Uh, in a three-way Republican primary. Class consciousness, not so much in this country. So... Bad results all around uh, yesterday's elections. Yeah, uh, Cocaine Mitch has uh, gotten the last <laughs> laugh here. Well, thanks to Don Blankenship, I did learn that uh, Cocaine Mitch, that's a real thing. His wife's shipping company has been dinged for uh, international drug trafficking. Yeah, I mean, the, I, it's, it's, I, I think, Matt, you pointed this out, that you, know, you can kill most of my family in a coal mining disaster, <laughs> 
But if you tell me that、uh, somebody has a China wife, then I, <laughs> I'm going to have to vote my values. Hey, he's telling the truth. Did you see the thing today, though, where Mitch McConnell's office put out a photo of Mitch photoshopped into the Netflix Narcos promotional materials <laughs> that just said, Nice try, Don. Yep. Man, well done on, with his. With his,、uh, his social media team,、uh, who are a lot younger and more savvy than him, they're in their early 60s. <laughs> so they're still wired in and they can do funny, ironic memes like that. That's the Benny Johnson special tape. So,、um, yeah, the other, the other big news of the week, of course, was、uh, the you know, surprise, surprise. I think we all saw this coming. We're pulling out of the Iran deal,、uh, unilaterally just going to institute more sanctions on Iran. We're pulling out of the deal. It would seem fairly obvious where this is heading. I mean,、uh, yeah. you know where it's heading? A fucking better deal. Because <laughs> what happened was Trump got in there and he didn't really have a problem with the Iran deal, but he didn't get to make it. He wants to make deals. So he undid that deal so that he could make a deal himself. Because that's what he gets up to do, folks, every day. It's to make deals. And now we get a chance for him to make the best deal that's ever happened. I'm folks, so excited. Folks, they're getting rid of all of the nuclear capabilities and we get. A whole bunch of Fatouche salad. Have you had this salad? This Fatouche salad. It's amazing. It's amazing. We did a deal. We did a, a joint deal with the Iranians and also all of your grandkids. Folks, they're going to start calling you more. Your grandkids are going to call you twice a month now, and there's going to be no Iranian nukes. Can you believe the deal I just made? Folks, we're moving the nation's grandparents into Iran's nuclear sites, and they'll be inspected by your grandkids every week. Can you believe it? I just want to say congratulations to Iran on their nuclear weapon. This is, this is going to be great. I'm looking forward to greater、okay. Persia. I know. I mean,、uh, Felix、uh, in the past, not with us here, but、uh, Felix's famous、uh, completely censored appearance on one of the Pod Save America guys' show. Cowards. LA Pod Fest. One of the things he said is, I, we should give Iran a nuclear weapon. That's more true now than ever. I mean, obviously, the thing is, not only if you're Iran or North Korea, if you're any country, If、even if you're our NATO allies, it's now obvious that doing any kind of agreement or treaty with America is a fool's fucking errand because our political system is just too unstable and idiotic to adhere to it. And that's what we've done now. Well, why God- and, and if you're Iran or North Korea, who apparently already has one, but if you're Iran, you'd be fucking insane not to go full on developing, just full bore developing a nuclear weapon right now. Well, why did Kerry and Obama negotiate this treaty that had fucking sunset clauses? Because they thought they'd have the presidency forever.、Jesus、they thought the demographics、Christ. were destiny and they all had it all figured out and they'd never be able to accomplish anything domestically again, but there would always be a democratic president. Like there'd always be an England. But maybe, then,、oh, maybe, though, it wasn't even that. Maybe they were just like, well, yeah, but then I'll be gone. Not my problem. Yeah, but I mean, I really do think that a lot of the stuff that they've set up. Because these guys do care about their legacy because they are self obsessed, narcissistic jack offs. And I think, and it, it was so fucking tenuous. As we've seen, it was this insanely rickety Jenga tower that has now been totally collapsed because all you need is one dude in there who is basically a, a tertiary syphilis Rodney Dangerfield. To destroy the whole thing.、Yeah. It, it was all predicated on Hillary solidifying it. I think they also presumed any Republican who would be elected had to tell the swine that, oh, yeah, I'm going to get rid of the Iran deal, but then realize, oh, reality forces are、right. yes. doing this. They were going to have adults in the room. Yeah. Yes.、Uh, so we noticed that the other countries involved in this say they're going to maintain the deal without America. But I mean, 
I mean, I'm I don't just, know what practically that means. I'm just excited for uh, Trump to go to North Korea and just to see how he gets snookered by Kim Jong Un. How do you think? I don't know. I mean, uh, maybe do some like cool basketball tricks for him, <laughs> and, uh, and he really takes all the troops out of the Korean Peninsula. <laughs> I think, yeah, he will exchange. He will exchange all the troops in the Korean Peninsula, and also allow them to have a nuke in exchange for a real baldness cure, the one from Seinfeld. Uh, but <laughs> Jared's kids are forced to go to a North Korean Ivy League school <laughs> as an exchange program. They ex- they swap. Uh, 666 Park Avenue for the giant pyramid. In <laughs> the giant pyramid. <laughs> well, I was going to say uh, the, the the new deal with Iran, they should, you know, Iran, if Iran agrees to buy 666 Park Avenue, then they can develop a nuclear weapon. Something uh, like that. It'll, I, I mean, like the, the lib fear. Oh, no, he's going to get he's going to get beat. Good. Who cares? This is yeah. stupid. It's not America's place to be fucking. Uh, doing this in the first place. There shouldn't be any American troops in the fucking Korean Peninsula anyway. What the oh, fuck? We shouldn't be, you know, we shouldn't have these embargoes that prevent North Koreans from getting the technology they need in order to compete on, a, on an international level with their South Korean brothers at gaming. <laughs> oh, man. If they got South Korean level speeds with their discipline, oh, they, God. they'd be unstoppable. Uh, actually, maybe that is a bad idea for us. No, keep the embargo. <laughs> keep you would get really sick of getting murked on Overwatch by Juche69. I would. And you would be calling for a preemptive strike I on Pyongyang within a week. That would turn me into John Bolton. Well, yeah. I mean, that is the thing. You know, it, it's Bolton. You know, he, he's in the saddle right now. And it's just like, I don't know. It's the worst people from the Bush administration are back again. And... They got their eyes on the prize, which even from 2001 onwards, or probably even before that, has always been Iran. I God, I just, I really hope that this isn't going where I think it's going, which is some kind of military confrontation with Iran. But should that happen, I'd just like to get on the record now as saying when we eventually get rinsed by the Iran's military, it will be eminently justified and deserved. Oh, and of course. Yeah, but then there's going to be decades of Vietnam-style resentment about how the uh, liberals wouldn't let us take the gloves off. Oh, man. Yeah, I got to yeah, say, yeah. though, like if we if we keep going and we, when the war starts, we're providing critical support for the people's, uh, you know, the Islamic Republic here in America, that we go down as the Jane Fonda of the Iran oh, war. That'd be great. <laughs> By the way, every time we're in public, some guy in a camo hat just red face screaming <laughs> we're like 80 years old hawking fucking uh, diet pills and <laughs> exercise tapes and everybody's grandpa's just throwing beer koozies at the tv screen hey hey uh if anyone in iran's government is listening and wants to set up a nice photo shoot on one of your anti-aircraft batteries i would, yeah, love, like to, I would love to take we part will all in that. come dressed like barbarella yeah, I, i've heard comb is gorgeous actually i'd like to see that so yeah i mean obviously the uh Pulling out of the Iran deal has huge ramifications that I think uh, warrant uh, further discussion. I think we'll be getting to that on this weekend's episode. But until then, we've got a really great interview with the legendary Barbara Ehrenreich. (laughs) So, uh, Barbara, I read your new book, uh, Natural Causes, and I got to say, as someone who... uh, hates exercise, um, eating well, and just wellness of any kind in general. I found it uh, a wonderfully refreshing read. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> Some but, uh, people find uh, that I'm a public health menace, but 
no, exactly. But at the same time, I I still I do still hope to live to be about a hundred. You know, I'm not I'm I'm holding on tightly uh, to this, but I'm not really taking any of the uh, the the steps that uh, you outline in this book to uh, prevent uh, the inevitable. Oh well, uh, why do you want to live to be older than a hundred? Well, I mean, as long as my quality of life is okay, I'd like to. You know, there's just so much possibility in continuing. Uh, but if it becomes you know, too much of a hassle, I can see uh, wanting to check out. But uh, life is still pretty interesting. Oh, yeah, I agree. But uh, Barbara, could you talk a little bit about how, like, the, the book is sort of a, a, a polemic against our, our contemporary society's ideas of death, or more specifically, how to avoid it and how to be healthy and well. Could you describe how contemporary American society views death? Well, I guess I've just been finding out because I've been going around the country, um, and I find that the big thing I have to do, I'm telling people, is that they are going to die, <laughs> and that that's news. Um, I don't know. But it really, that you have to get past that point with anybody is uh, not always so easy. You write in the, uh, the introduction, and I think a very good line, uh, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but you say, you can think of death bitterly. Or, more realistically, you can think of life as an interruption of an eternity of personal non-existence, which I thought was great. Because I've always sort of thought about death of like, you know, well, what, what, what will being dead be like? And it's sort of like, well, it didn't bother me before I was born, so I can't imagine it'll cause me much trouble after I'm gone. Right. And I, you know, I've been an insomniac for much of my life. So um, I could just think of it as a Kind of super ambient that lasts longer than four hours. <laughs> yeah. That's that's great. You can finally get uh, get some rest. But yes, <laughs> uh, greater than the idea of of death or our fear of dying, which is a pretty universal trait among people in in American society today. There's also this idea of health. It's not just about not dying or you know prolonging our life as long as possible, but it's also about the idea of being virtuous. That you know, mind and body is a reflection of our inner soul, and that there is a connection not just between health and virtue, but also being unhealthy and being sinful. Oh yes, very much so, um, and that, that's one reason uh, people are appalled uh, when I break one of their rules, uh, like, for example, uh, buttering toast <laughs> or buttering bread. And I can't tell you how many times I've had to say that that's what bread exists for, <laughs> to be a vehicle of butter to get to your mouth. Um, and, you know, it, it, there's a kind of an, an edge to those criticisms, which is you, um, you are not virtuous, a virtuous person would deny themselves butter and possibly the bread, too. So that's, that goes very deep. I don't know if this, how much that is associated with the fear of dying. One of the things that motivated me to get into this book is that I began to pe realize that a lot of people in my kind of age demographic uh, that I knew were more and more obsessed with time, over time, with uh, their health. That they they would talk about their good cholesterol and bad cholesterol results from the doctor. They would, um, you know, curate their diet 
according to, you know, ever-changing rules, they would, um, you know, they would have an exercise regimen that, you know, is very quantified. How long do I do it? How many reps do I do it? What kind of weight? And all of this, it began to seem like they were retreating, these contemporaries of mine, into themselves. The people who had been activists, well, maybe less so because they were spending an awful lot of time uh, obsessing about their bodies. Or to be more up to date, I should say, their mind bodies. <laughs> because in the wellness uh, culture, mind and body are somehow uh, glued together. Well, let's say uh, this idea of the individual is like, Outside of um, this, this sort of contrarian take on the medical industry and particularly testing for various diseases, which I want to talk about, a thread that emerges reading your book is this idea of the individual and how economic and political changes in our culture have made us all intensely individualistic, but also at the same time we feel less and less control over the world outside of ourselves through work or life in general – so we've begun to turn inward and to discipline our, our mind bodies, as you said, as a reaction to that. Well, something happened about 400 years ago that introduced um, in European society and American society uh, the idea of the self. Uh, before that, there had been the soul, and before that, pretty much not anything. At least that's what the... Scholars say about the ancient world that it, um, the ancient Mediterranean world, that there wasn't a big emphasis on some entity inside your chest or inside your head or wherever uh, that was the real you, a little kernel inside the body. Uh, somehow this comes to pass, I've, apparently with the growth of more market economies, when people begin to see themselves more um, separate from other people, uh, competitive with other people, and capable of changing their own class uh, by um, the way they dressed or the way they talked or the way they danced or whatever. So it, it was in that period that we associate with the Enlightenment uh, that um, this notion of the self began to arise. Now it's gone to such proportions that you might say it is a kind of deity uh, in our in our world. Uh, we're supposed to love ourselves. Uh, we're supposed to even. I found a website that encouraged you to worship yourself. It's called Twitter. <laughs> Uh, Barbara, more than more so than just the the shift uh, in the Enlightenment, you talk about uh, the the counterculture of the '60s and '70s that started out uh, with the idea that uh, you know we were going to change the world, and when that ran into the grim reality of life in American politics, and you know faced their own failure. They, be, they shifted entirely towards a revolution of the self. You use the example well, that, of Jerry Rubin. That's what Rubin. Christopher Lash yeah. uh, wrote in, in his book, The Culture of Narcissism, in the 70s. He, he thought 
that the um, retreat into one's own body uh, and self uh, was a pulling away from political engagement in the 60s. His big um, example was a good one, and that was Jerry Rubin, uh, the founder of the well, co-founder of the Yippies, who was you know he was a radical activist against the war in Vietnam, uh, you know for civil rights and all sorts of good things. And then in the seventies, as those movements seemed to him to dissipate, or maybe not need him so much, um, he he became a um, a wellness guru. He, he tried every single modality he could find of self-improvement and engaged in it. Please don't ask me to <laughs> list them all because uh, there, there are things like rolfing. I don't know if that's even done anymore. It's like a really intense kind of massage. No, it's cosplaying as one of the Muppets. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, well I, I don't you know, know about these things. but Or, you know, there's another thing very popular in the wellness culture. Uh, of being uh, having hot stones placed strategically around your body. Uh, his former partner, Abby Hoffman, took the opposite path, right? Suicide. Yeah, yeah. he just killed himself. <laughs> um, but both removed themselves from any kind of political activism. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if, if we're now living in, in, in this world in which sort of the counterculture and neoliberal forces have sort of merged together to make everyone hyper-individualized and hyper-competitive with one another, uh, the body really does become, you know, the temple, as the old saying goes, and the, the priests of that are the medical profession, are doctors and surgeons and, and hospitals and things like that. You describe in, in, in the book, um, in a chapter on ritual, how the experience of seeing a doctor is very much akin to, or getting a physical or going through any of these screenings, is very similar to a kind of ritual, a kind of religious experience. Because you talk about that. I would that say it is a ritual in many cases. The, the, no, the, that idea of ritual uh, developed and took a sort of a, a nasty kind of racist turn when anthropologists went to, um, you know, what we would later call third world countries or places where there were still indigenous uh, societies, and observed things going on, activities, which the anthropologist interpreted as kind of attempts to heal the sick. But since these attempts look so bizarre to the Western anthropologists, you know, these were uh, things that involved drumming, uh, chanting perhaps, dancing, and waving around... um, you know, very significant objects or something like that. You know, the anthropologist said, oh, well, this this is not real medicine. This is ritual. So it always had that kind of disparaging tone to say that in medicine, to say that something is a ritual is not to say a good thing about it because it still carries that, that tone. But when you look at... Uh, as an anthropologist, for example, at what Western doctors do, uh, you see some of the some elements that can only be called ritual, like the wearing of white coats. What's that about? 
It, it's to signify that the doctor is also a laboratory person. You know, does as if as if he or she does experiments in the lab, or even that takes measurements in the lab. They don't. Um, then, the, I think the biggest invitation to the use of the word ritual in our kind of what uh, medicine is that um, so much of it um, has been, and and I go through this in in some detail in the book, doesn't actually have any kind of biological effect on the patient. You know, case after case, we're looking at procedures which, you know, I could say just kindly are rituals, or I could say, more nastily, are ways of extracting money um, from people or their health insurers. I mean, obviously, we like the white coats because it uh, connotes a sort of authority. We're, you know, we feel like we're putting our lives in the hands of these people. But I wish they would go one step further and just dress and act like mad scientists and have those sort of arcing <laughs> uh, Tesla coils in the office and burbling <laughs> beakers and flasks and things like that. But uh, Amber, go ahead. Hi, Barbara. Um, so I actually haven't uh, read the book because Will has been bogarting the review copy. Um, but the stuff about ritual uh, reminded me very much of uh, an earlier book you wrote called Bright Sighted and about positivity that I think was very much inspired by um, you dealing with cancer. And I, I remember the way you described um, these kind of I, like support groups um, sort of getting together and developing this um, secondary kind of alternative language about survivors and healing. And that's most certainly ritual. Um, but I wondered if you could talk about sort of your criticisms of that culture as well. Sure. I'm, I'm always happy to bash positive thinking. <laughs> In fact, I'd like a little appreciation for the fact that I go on in this book to also bash um, mindfulness Absolutely. Oh, we're going to go all the way in on mindfulness in a second, but uh, yeah. and wellness. I mean, uh, yeah, the uh, the positive thinking idea, as applied to illnesses like cancer, was that you can control your body with your mind. Uh, you can tell your cells what to do. Uh, essentially, tell your cells to attack those bad cancer cells, and you will get better just by thinking cheery thoughts. Now, that enraged me when I was being treated for breast cancer because I could see perfectly well as a kind of a blame-the-victim thing. You know, if, if you're not better, it's not because our medicine didn't work. It's because you didn't think the right way. Well, the way I was thinking throughout the months of my cancer treatment was, uh, you know, like rage all the time, rage, <laughs> hatred. And so I could, you know, I guess I could write a, part, a book saying that that's the way to cure yourself of cancer. That, um, but that would be no, it would have no more basis than the idea that positive thinking will do it. All, running through all these things is the assumption that we can control everything in our bodies with our minds. I mean, one of the things you bring up in the introduction is sort of a a realization that that spurred a lot of this thinking was when you first came across uh, a study that said that it's actually the body's immune system that abets the growth of cancer cells. Yep. This was a big turning point for me. It was about 
10 years ago when I read an article in Scientific American uh, about the involvement of immune cells, and particularly ma- particular macrophages, in the development and metastasis of cancer. And it had been known since like the turn of the 20th century that macrophages, which are these very uh, active, mobile killer cells, um, gather around sites of tumors. But the optimistic idea was that they must be gathering there so that they could kill the tumor cells. Only, you know, about 10 years ago, um, it was revealed that, in fact, what they are doing there is helping the tumor cells. They help the tumor cells get out, I mean, the cancer cells get out of their one spot they're in and enter the uh, bloodstream and go around and form new colonies around the body. This is the process called metastasis, which is usually, you know, fatal. A bad sign. Yeah, so, I mean, you describe all the ways in which uh, your your own body and even your own mind um, is, in fact, not working with you and is very much hostile to your continued existence. Well, it often is, yeah. yeah. And um, this, I mean, the, to me, this was a very deep shock because the I think the underlying um, idea, um, both in science, so-called scientific medicine and in the wellness alternatives, is that the body and mind work together and that the body in particular is one big harmonious system. Every part of it reinforcing the other parts in a good way. Now... <laughs> If the cells that are supposed to protect us can can cause us to die, we got to look at that a little more different, you know, a little differently. And there's so many ways in which that notion of wholeness and a holistic kind of body is refuted by actual experience. For example, cancer itself. What is cancer? It's a cell originally, sometimes just one that decides it's tired of taking orders, tired of doing what it's supposed to do in the body. You know, because the idea of the body was always like the, the, the cells in it were just like citizens of a communist dictatorship, you know, cheerfully doing, giving their all for the, for the collective. But a, a cell could say, no, no, enough of this. I want to travel. I want to go around the body. I want to reproduce myself like a fiend, and that's what cancer is. Or think of autoimmune diseases. Um, here you have your immune cells deciding to um, just attack some organ of the body. Now, uh, immune cells are supposed to attack microbes that enter the body, but they're not supposed to attack parts of the body. Sometimes, though, they do that. I, I, I want to get rid of that paradigm of holism and holistic everything and say, no, the body is something more like a battle battlefield. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe if you were more mindful or more self-aware, your cells would be as well. And they'd be strictly regimented. <laughs> they'd be like, you know, North Ooh, that hurts. <laughs> you think I'm just not exerting my mind enough to those giant parades in North Korea. It'd be, it'd be a little more like that. Uh, I want to I want to get to mindfulness, but before we get there, I want to talk about um, these screenings because this is sort of I think will raise 
some eyebrows for people who haven't read the book or who are hearing about this for the first time. You, you open the book by talking about how, in, in your mind, you're old enough to die. And I've seen a lot of people question what that means, but it's entirely self-evident to me. It means that you've passed the threshold from which, if your death were announced in a newspaper, people would say, oh, my God, what a tragedy. You know, like, uh, oh, I, yeah. I've been applying. I mean, I'm in my 30s and I feel like that. So I understand uh, instinctively. But a big part of this being old enough to die is you're saying I'm no longer going in for all these screenings and tests of things that might kill me. I feel good now. I don't want to find out about anything that's going to that might kill me in five to ten years. Yeah, no, I, I, I said to my uh, primary uh, care physician uh, at some point a few years ago, I said, I will come to you if something is bothering me, but you are not to go looking for problems. <laughs> you know, that's just the deal here. You, you have uh, one particularly ludicrous example in the book where you talk about at a medical meeting, someone reported that a 100-year-old woman had just had her first mammogram which caused the audience to break into a loud cheer. <laughs> yeah. It's like you're a hundred years that, old. That You've won. Appalled me. Yeah. I mean, and one of the reasons it appalls me is I think I am past the age where I want to would be willing to sacrifice six months or a year to undergoing cancer treatments. You know, I don't. I don't want to go through chemotherapy again. No way. I'd rather spend the six. Six months um, doing fun things, I can imagine. But outside of just the, the quality of life issue here, and that like it, it, it's better to live uh, the time that you do have as you get older in a way that you're in control of and that is pleasurable, uh, rather than just you know fighting these diseases that might kill you later and then undergoing treatments for them that are just as bad. However, but the actual tests themselves, they're very, there's very good reason to be skeptical of them. In, in one chapter you say here... Um, there is no significant decline in breast cancer mortality that can be attributed to routine mammographic, mammographic screening. And further than that, uh, just the standard GYN exams were shown to have of no value for asym asymptomatic adult women. But yet, like, wow. the, the idea of a, like mammograms in particular, there's a huge um, ideology and push that every woman should be getting them. You talk about colonoscopies as well. After a certain age, you just got to get a colonoscopy. Everyone's got to get one. That we all got to start doing this at a certain point. But you, you, you say that there's actually no real evidence that any of these things reduce our risk of dying of these diseases. Well, that's my conclusion uh, from investigating every test that was proffered by the doctor, and I don't mean doing lab tests here or something, but just looking at what um, the discussion is among doctors, the debate, the debate, the, the, what the statistical studies are that show or don't show any benefit from these tests. And it, it, this is a very interesting time um, because so many things that were part of some kind of almost re religious observance are going away, are being questioned, such as PSA tests for men. I, I, I for some reason, get some kind of clinical news report, you know, in my email every day, and it just, it, the new, new rule um, real health coming from Dr. the... Um, <laughs> 
the doctors who study these things is you should only do PSA testing on men who ask for it. Now, in other words, this is this I'll, is completely I'll always a little ritual. I remember that that was one of the uh, big arguments against Obamacare that the Tea Party got really upset about was that it 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 uh, proscribed you know things like breast exams for women under a certain age and I think limited them by year. And the Tea Party people, you know, they were apoplectic about it. Said, "Oh, this is how the death panels will work. Will work, right?" And you know, to trigger the libs, they would go and you know get their colons checked once a week. <laughs> Jesus, that's deep. Yeah, you like no, I, I'm, a, <laughs> I'm aware of that kind of backlash. I would just point out that in our country, the distribution of health care is wildly skewed uh, toward older people, people who are over 65, who have insurance, for sure, who have Medicare. Medicare. Uh, then there are whole groups who are underserved all the time, Uh a shocking thing I've learned since writing the book is that maternal mortality is on the rise in the United States. Now, that's that reverses decades and de- decades of decline uh, due apparently to better prenatal care and uh, perhaps better nutrition for more women. And it is mortality is particularly up for black women in the South. Uh, who are probably not getting very good maternal mortality, which is a kind of preventive care which would be worth investing in. Um, Another case would be, um, you know, where we could use more uh, kinds of testing and preventive care is lead poisoning, Mm -hmm. you know, of kids, of little kids. Yeah, I mean, like... And and I'd like to see the resources skewed a little bit more toward the young. Yeah, and here in New York, we still have tons of buildings, of family buildings that have lead paint in them. And it's just this thing that people just kind of live with, which is really strange. And you see spikes in things like learning disabilities, and they're like, hey, maybe we should check this out. But it's like yeah. people just live in those conditions. And I think there's this weird kind of idea that, well, you're old and you're sick and you're young and you're healthy, and that's just not the way health works. No. No, you're absolutely right. In the 1970s, the the Young Lords, which were the Latino equivalent of the Black Panthers, were, were going around doing their own free lead poisoning tests. They would, um, you know, sort of hijack a, a truck uh, to do it with from some hospital and take it out into neighborhoods. So very important to do these things and not keep nagging People like me to to get some totally dubious uh, little exploration of their of their bodies. I mean, this is another huge thing that comes up in 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 the book is the huge differences in what we're talking about when we think about health and wellness as it relates to class. Because on the one level, you like you said, you have very older, wealthier people who have great insurance or Medicare or medic. Uh, they, they, you know. We can't test them enough. Doctors love them. They want to run every test, every all the most expensive equipment. But at the same time, this is contrasted with a society with the grotesque reality that you just described of incredibly easily preventable things like maternal mort- maternal and infant mortality going on the rise after like decades of decline. So, I mean, there's a question of both 
the people who have access to doctors and health insurance, how they're treated. But then there is an, an entire class of people who basically can't go to see the doctor, even if they needed to, and it was for something that could be treated. Yeah, no, it, it's, it's bizarre. And so I'm, I think, you know, I, I think I'm pretty resistant to the criticism that, oh, well, there'll be less health care for everybody if we, if we give up on our, you know, weekly colonoscopies or something. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's just crazy. There are things that doctors and other health staff can do well, uh, like, you know, dealing with trauma, dealing with acute infectious diseases. But this, this insane emphasis on preventive care among the elderly uh, really is offensive from a social <laughs> justice point, point of view. Stop giving medical care to the elderly. <laughs> you heard it here first. Yeah, you Barbara heard it from Barbara Ehrenreich. Well, I've been saying the Dems should run on that for a while now. That would get my vote. Um, Barbara, I, I, I really want to talk now about my favorite chapter of the book, which was about mindfulness. Mindfulness is a word that we hear more and more of nowadays. It's, 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 being, it's this vaguely prescriptive thing that we all need to be practicing because we live now, we're told that we're living, it's, it's harder than ever to be mindful because we're all stressed out, we're on our phones all the time, we're, there's so many distractions, so we all have to be mindful all the time. But I don't really know what mindfulness means. So when people say mindfulness or we need to be mindful, what are they talking about? Well, there are two things, <laughs> two ways to look at it. One, uh, I would just call mindfulness the virtue of the upper classes. It's the virtue they have. They may be selfish. They may, you know, be absorbing resources that so many other people could use, but they are mindful. Maybe even mindful of their piggishness. I don't know. But, but then was as Silicon Valley, uh, which sort of hatched mindfulness as a mass phenomenon, uh, saw it. Mindfulness is an opportunity to sell a product, and that product um, has been mindfulness apps. There are now, oh, when I did the book, I think there were hundreds. Now I would say there are many, many more of these. And basically what these are is timers, like a timer or a kitchen timer, that you set and for, say, a minute during which you meditate and perhaps look on your phone at picture, you know, calendar type pictures, or hear lovely music, um, soothing music. So the idea that uh, meditation, which comes to us through uh, Buddhism and Hinduism, could be divested of all its religious or transcendental sorts of um, evocations and just turned into, well, like, here's your 60 minutes of, of meditation to make you mindful and to make you more productive at your job. Yeah, that is the really disturbing thing here, because it's, it's it would be one thing if the people were saying, yeah, meditate so you'll be more relaxed, you know, maybe you'll feel a little bit better. All of this is about being better employees and being more efficient at doing the job that's driving you crazy in the first place. <laughs> yes, yes. And that's why so many companies, which you would not associate, say, with Silicon Valley, General Mills, for example, uh, you know, have instituted 
uh, mindfulness training for their employees and um, meditation rooms for their employees. Barbara, one of the things you said that was very funny, though, is that it, it had to be Silicon Valley to, to inject this idea in the mainstream because if the cereal companies had been pushing mindfulness, it wouldn't have caught on with the same sort of cool technological cachet as, let's say, Apple or Steve Jobs. Oh, yeah. It's like a brand and a brand that says, this is scientific. The smartest <laughs> people in the world believe in this. It's interesting to me, though, because I, you know, my sort of general understanding of, say, like the, the Buddhist conception of of meditation is to some degree to get away from the idea of the self and quit facing it inward and stop being a, a neurotic. And now it's just, it's become this entirely kind of, I mean, and I, I don't say this as like a moral judgment, but like a literally self-centered thing, which is, I mean, and you see the same thing, I think kind of with, with feminist culture, there's this extreme focus on the self, like the body, positivity movement where you have to like love yourself and I don't want to I, I want a body obliviousness movement where I don't think about myself <laughs> where I can just walk around like where I could just walk around like men do As and I not said, think about you it. know there's no you find in the mindfulness literature nothing ever about enlightenment which is the goal <laughs> of Buddhist meditation as I understand it uh, and it's it's simply improving yourself so you can be more effective and Dominate your coworkers better, and so on. Not only it's, that, not only are you not seeking enlightenment, but you're also sort of seeking to anesthetize yourself to the horrible realities of things that are going on around you in your own society. Be they expanding income inequality, as you said, rising infant mortality, and just the general precarious state of the world we live in. Yeah, and I can, uh, you know, I am sympathetic to the desire to distance myself from the insanity of the world we are in. I'm completely sympathetic to that. And if mindfulness, if, if the 60 seconds of timed meditation could get me out of the America of Donald Trump, I would be the first to do it. In fact, I have a little bit of that feeling about my own, um, you know, exercise regimen. I can't do anything that I can think of anyway, about the uh, political facts of this country right now. But I can grow my quadriceps. I can improve my triceps. Then that realm, I have some control. I thought mindfulness was when you go to the bathroom but forget your phone, so you just have to stare off. And take <laughs> <your mouth. laughs> no. That was a very unmindful thing of you to say. Uh Barbara, uh, a question I had reading your book is like over. I mean, it's it's hard to tell, but in your opinion, and I understand when we when I say things like health or wellness, like it's hard to define what these means. But like in your opinion, is are Americans healthier or just living a better quality of life than they were forty years ago? Most people. Wait, who, what Americans are you talking about? Overall, I mean, or I mean, I guess. I guess well, maybe, no, I yeah. mean you. Uh, I talked about the increase in maternal mortality. Then there's a fascinating uh, fact of the increase in white working class, especially male but also female mortality. This was a complete shock. Now, white mortality has always been lower than black mortality for obvious kinds of reasons. But the gap began to close 
uh, since about, uh, again, just in the last decade or so, with white uh, men, like over 45, over, yeah, over 45, suddenly hitting, you know, new record levels of mortality. And this is all, this is not, this is, comes from careful studies uh, from uh, Princeton University and other places. Uh, what it, the reasons why these older white guys are dying uh, is, well, one, suicide. Uh, two, alcoholism and depression, which are linked together. And three, uh, opioid overdoses. Those seem to be the three big killers. And the economist who studies these things at Princeton has, has called these, you know, this, a disease or diseases of despair. Mm. The kinds of jobs that people had uh, and could support a family on are long gone to de- deindustrialization. Um, and this is, you know, there's not a lot left. Now, the same is true for workers of all colors, but white people have uh, certain advantages at killing themselves. One is they're more likely to possess guns, and that's how uh, that's the, the most— That's the best—that's the Cadillac of suicide methods. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the best way, um, especially in rural white America. And then there's um, the interesting fact that doctors— have been much more likely to prescribe opioids to white people uh, than to say black people because white pe- the, the black people are already suspected of being drug abusers. Oh, oh wow. They also yeah, and, that- and so because of that bit of racism, probably a lot of lives were saved, black lives were saved. They also uh, presume that black people have a higher tolerance for pain. Oh, yeah, there certainly was a, a skewed uh, prescribing. Of opioids. So we, we've just you described how like this the shift in both our economy, politics, and culture that has made everyone more and more individually focused on their own health has actually not made anyone ha- healthier. This being a good example of health collectively is a collective problem. Like the well-being of our society and how we apportion medical care is something that is a group problem that can only have a group collective political solution. What what would a sane society's healthcare and wellness, I don't know, systems or attitudes look like? Hmm. Well, uh, I, we would start with the areas of greatest need. Um, you know, where have there have been increases in mortality? Um, we we would try to look at the social causes, uh, such as deindustrialization. And we're not going to get the same jobs back, but what are we going to do who, to, for people whose lives have been emptied out by the uh, steel plant, plants closing and the mines shutting down and so on? We'd, we'd have to talk about these things, and they, they would be very fundamental and take us what, outside of the realm of what we consider medicine, just as we have to, to get outside of the, the little realm of medicine to talk about lead poisoning. You know, there's just so much more going on with that. I have a proposal. We give every CEO Steve Jobs as doctor, and the the problem fixes itself. (laughs) Well, I I mean, 
we kind of like laugh at that, but there is this huge emphasis on um, on choice uh, and and making good, healthy decisions that people seem to make, which is produces a completely, I think, deranged conception of health and 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 like you know health maintenance. And I remember reading, and this was a while back, but something in in I think it was Mother Jones and. They were talking about anti-vaxxers because for a while there people were really, I think, rightfully concerned about the anti-vaccination movement. But one of the things they discovered is that the vast majority of people who didn't have children, especially who didn't have vaccinations, were just very poor and didn't have a, have a GP and came from single um, parent households that where their mother or father couldn't, um, didn't have the time to take off work to go get their kid vaccinated. Very good point. Very interesting. It's like a lot of people can't vote uh, because they can't get the time off or the child care to go and vote. I'm really disappointed in everything I'm hearing because I am with Peter Thiel. Death is an ideology. (laughs) We all have been programmed to think that we have to die. And that is 20th century thinking, and we can transcend it. We just need a lot of teenage blood. <laughs> He's going to be our next Bathory. Uh, yeah, Barney, if you, you talk about me, uh, if anybody's actually doing it, I want to know. <laughs> but there, you know, there are the immortalists yeah. in Silicon Valley, in billionaires um, who have, are pouring tremendous amounts of money into the search for immortality. The more modest of them. Just hope to live about to about 120. Um, some of them think they can go into the thousands. Yeah, no, 120 or never die. Shit. Yeah, and so they, they. This is just this is a big enterprise right now. Yeah, you write that they're they're trying to lap uh, Methuselah, who lived to be about a thousand, I think, in the Bible. I'm hoping that they actually do have the technology to upload your brain into a computer and live forever and that people like Peter Thiel do it, but it just turns out that it's just like a video game and you have to die over and over and over again for the amusement of other people. Well, that doesn't sound so good. And <laughs> I, don't, I don't want just my brain unloaded into something because then your brain could be per- perpetually tortured exactly. with the electric currents. Or be Moreover, a- I think one of the great parts about being alive is having a body. <laughs> Oh, well, there's a thought. Yeah. Overrated. <laughs> hey, Barbara, this is Virgil. Um, you've been involved in the DSA for decades, and you were an honorary co-chair until last year when the position of honorary chair was abolished. What do you think about the DSA and its prospects today? Well, I had to say, I, I think my own overthrow uh, as a co-chair was uh, a mark of enormous progress in DSA. <laughs> You know, which had been a kind of gerontocracy. (laughs) And I certainly wasn't, you know, it was really moribund uh, since the, well, since the mid-80s, I would guess. Uh, And then Trump brought it to life. And that's why, you know, now it's a a young people's organization. I mean, that friendly with, I'm, I'm totally supportive but, um, you know, this is wonderful what's happening. And they're just doing such smart things. 
I have to say that's very magnanimous about you about the uh, co-chair thing because if it had been me and they tried to overthrow me in a palace coup, I would have fought that tooth and nail. <laughs> Their denunciations would have been no, swift. I was delighted. It was the best thing that could have happened. And it wasn't a confrontation. They just quietly removed those offices. So in your experience, you know, uh, back uh, going back to the 80s, what practices by the left were the most effective and that you think could be emphasized today? I can think of some bad ideas. <laughs> okay, those no, are good we'll, too. we'll hear those. Yeah. Well, bad I think that the worst that the idea that I was always fighting against within the old DSA was the idea that our whole goal uh, as socialists was to bring about full employment, and I and Francis Fox Piven and some others said, "No, wait a minute. Uh, there are plenty of jobs in America, but they just don't pay enough." You know, we were looking at women workers, so women, workers of color, and all the immigrant workers who are so drastically underpaid. So we said, no, that's, that's not, that can't be our goal. And look, we, we have unimaginably low unemployment right now, and wages aren't going up, which is no mystery because wages don't go up unless people fight for that. But, you know, that was a, I think that was a big stumbling block, this full employment business. I mean, there is, you know, I, I hear rumblings now of, of a federal jobs guarantee being uh, proffered as a sort of big social reform alongside a universal basic income. What do, you, what do you make of those two ideas? Well, universal basic income, great. The first, first one was, was what, generating more public sector jobs? No, uh, fed, yeah, federal jobs guarantee, basically. Yeah, yeah. Oh, right. No, I think that's, that's fine. We have to recognize, though, that not all people can hold jobs. You know, one of the weird, bizarre, hyper-cruel things Trump wants to do is, uh, you know, make sure that you, you, well, that you don't get Medicaid and you don't get unemployment insurance in Unless you're working. Wait a minute. I can see the concentration, the, the contradiction even as I say that. But that all benefits should be um, confined to people who have jobs. Uh, well, Barbara Ehrenreich, uh, I think we'll leave it there. But I want to say the book is uh, Natural Causes. It's out now. Uh, Barbara Ehrenreich, uh, it was so great talking with you. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Well, it's fun for me too. Thanks. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.